most people who get something out of watching flatwater rowing are rowers and have some understanding of what's going on communication-wise and mentally in the boat. And that's what makes it exciting for us to watch, where coastal rowing is immediately relatable to anyone watching because of the chaos. There's like a, what is gonna happen here to these people and what are they doing? Even if you have no understanding of the rules or goals, it, it's still fun. Hello, and welcome to Steady State Podcast, your rowing fix where the water's flat, the catches are clean, and you can always hear the coxswain. We're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates the expansive array of rowers, coaches, and coxswains in a podcast designed to save a real-life experience from launch to coxie at every level. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. We are really interested in the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. And when it comes to the future of rowing, we love to talk about big ideas, new perspectives, and breaking down barriers. Ask most any rower about the perfect rowing conditions and they'll wax poetic about glassy calm water and zero wind when a blade can quietly drop into the water at the catch release clean, and the boat glides across the surface undisturbed. But ask a coastal rower about great conditions and the answer will be completely different. It'll involve navigating waves, executing turns around buoys, and end with a sprinting dive to the finish line on the beach. We invited John Huppy, Catherine Seaman, and Will Cuckrow from New Orleans Rowing Club to tell us about the Big Easy, a city with a rowing history that stretches back nearly 200 years, and their vision for the future of rowing in the Gulf South. Thanks everyone for being with us today. This is John Huppy, president of New Orleans Rowing Club. This is Kate Siemens, board member at large at New Orleans Rowing Club. This is Will Cookrow, director of masters and head coach at New Orleans Rowing Club. You're and listening, you're listening to, to Steady, Steady State, State Podcast. Podcast. Well, thank you all three of you for being here. We appreciate you taking some time this morning. Um, if you've listened to our podcast before, you know we do something called rapid fire and we are switching things up. So we like to put our, our guests in the hot seat and answer some really quick lightning round of questions about you and your rowing. Or we're going to ask you the questions and then you answer in order. Uh, John, Will, Kate. Okay. This will be really fast. Okay. So answer the question. So sweeper skull. 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 Port or starboard? Port. Starboard. Port. Bow seat or stroke seat? Bow seat. Bow seat. Stroke. Sprint race or head race? Sprint race. Head race. Sprint. Flat water or coastal? Coastal. Flat water. Definitely flat. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, uni suit or tank and trap? Uni. 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 Shoes or barefoot on the erg? Barefoot. Shoes. Shoes. <laughs> Calories, watts, or splits on your PM5? Splits. Splits. Watts. Favorite coxswain command to give or receive? 
Silence. <laughs> Finish it. Legs down. All right, and last but not least, coffee before or after a row? Before. Never. All the time. <laughs> I like that. All the answers. <laughs> All the time. So, Will, on a scale of one to 10, how would you say the rowing week is going at New Orleans Rowing Club? Just give us a temperature. Five. A five out of 10. Okay. Yeah. So we're just coming off Mardi Gras right now, uh, which always plays havoc with the New Orleans rowing season. Um, it's really hard to, you know, get everyone out there uh, after a long multiple day event of partying. So this is our, you know, first kind of week back from that. Um, so, you know, January is usually very strong because we have our indoor championship here in February. And then February, early March is a little bit slower for Mardi Gras. And then we ramp right back up. So ask me next week, it'll probably be back at a nine. Is, is there a bunch of hard partiers or does that just kind of come with Mardi Gras? Or is it just the, the nature of Mardi Gras? Imagine tailgating for two weeks straight. That's what it really is. It's a two week tailgate that does just wow. doesn't. Yes. It's a marathon. Um, it's every day. There's something going on. And, and we're really a global destination. So I don't know anyone who doesn't have friends come in. Uh, we had two national team rowers come in and stay in our house. Uh, one from the U.S. team and another one from Portugal. So uh, it's just a it's just a constant stream of visitors. And we have to go show them a good time. We have to be good hosts. You have to, right? Like, oh, darn, you know, I have to go to another party. <laughs> I've seen some pretty great photos. There's a ton of physical activity uh, too. There's a lot of, there's a ton of walking, biking, like to get around. Cause you like, you, you pick a, basically pick a place to park and that you're stuck there. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I've never been. Rachel, have you been? Uh, Yeah. I went to Mardi Gras once in college and didn't have the best time for a variety of reasons. And I kind of regret it. Someday I'd like to go back. It would be a totally different scene and I'd be approaching it with a totally different mentality. Um, I, I must've been like the only person who's ever gone to Mardi Gras and not had a good time. It was, it was ridiculous. (laughs) Sorry, but no, it's okay. But (laughs) I've seen, I've seen some great photos, uh, John, uh, of you and Hannah and, uh, John Olbreeze from the last few days. looks like you had a pretty good time. Oh Yeah. (laughs) Uh, that's probably one of the secrets of Mardi Gras is that um, there's a lot of costuming. I would I would actually say it's probably more intense than even a really good Halloween atmosphere. Uh, the costumes, I feel like there's more freedom in what you can do. You can make a political statement. You can just go all in on just a spiritual costume, um, really anything you want. And we really have fun with it. And you get to wear those costumes. I think everyone, every New Orleanian in their house has a massive costume box, which is pretty fun. It's kind of the, the magic box of goodies where you get to whip out wigs and beads and you know all sorts of accessories and stuff and mix and match between the years. It doesn't need to even make sense. <laughs> it, just, it just needs to work in the moment on the day, which is always really fun. Rachel and I love Coastal. Rachel has a little bit more of a connection to Coastal uh, with being part of an organization called Go Coastal. And, and my question for Will was, and, and I guess for John too, as is, is members of the club, is 
some clubs I think are bringing in coastal as a way to recruit and open up your recruitment for um, maybe folks who just want to do something a little different. You know, rowing can be definitely a one note type of thing. And it can also have a little bit of a kind of a cultish feel or a very narrow feel to people like, oh, they that's the six foot 10 guys from England and the Blazers. You know, there's like this, there's like the stereotypes and the myths. And I feel like coastal is is a way that we can get around that and, and invite and encourage new people to try rowing. Is that part of also because and also you are on coastal waters so that helps, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's what got us the most excited about this is just first off our venues here in the city. Um, we do have traditional flat water venues, but we are lucky to be right next to the 11th largest lake in the U.S., which in, in very many ways kind of acts as a very coastal body of water, uh, it being about 24 miles across. Uh, and it's, it's located literally half a mile from our flatwater boathouse uh, with access to launch almost anywhere. Um, so that's been really exciting. Uh, Will, do you wanna add anything to that? I mean, I think the venue is, is a huge part of it. Yeah, venues are big. And because of how Coastal is set up both with the long distance rowing, but also I think the beach sprints, um, you know, I think it's very telling that John and Hannah and their quad, they picked up a medal by milliseconds uh, running on that beach and diving into the sand. And that's a baseball move that I think John probably just has innately from playing baseball back in the day. So being able to equate tasks that you're going to do in a sport like coastal rowing with something that people may have done before makes it a lot easier to think about recruitment for other athletes. Yeah, and I think the proximity of our two venues too uh, is really special because it definitely opens doors on especially bad weather days. One thing that we struggle with here in New Orleans in the wintertime especially is not the temperature, it's actually just the cold fronts that bring a lot of wind, uh, which can make it really challenging to do flat water rowing. Um, so by opening up, instead of having to cancel practice, you can simply walk over and adjust and take different boats out. Um, so we're really happy about that kind of prospect. Uh, and I think the other thing is, is also recruiting non-competitive rowers too. Uh, we see it in Europe. There's so mm -hmm. much touring going on. I think touring coastal is a, a thing that the U.S. has no concept of right now. Uh, we're, we're starting to figure out the racing side of coastal, but I think that's probably the next kind of itch to scratch uh, is trying to figure out how to actually make a more recreational kind of endurance challenge, which is not racing from point A to point B, but uh, kind of having some challenges of, of going long distances in these boats. And I think that that's another thing that I'm really excited for. And I think a lot of our members uh, down here in the South are really going to like. Yeah, we were just talking with Kuhn Elbers in the Netherlands for our last episode. And we realized that at the end of that conversation, we spent a lot of time talking with him about touring. They do race there, but they also do a lot of touring. You take out a boat and you can go uh, on canals for 30K or something there. And so there, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of opportunity here to get people out on, get people out on the water without racing. Yeah, just for context, um... So I, I'm the one who's been rowing and racing, obviously. Uh, and now that we're starting to program, I invited Will and Kate specifically because they represent two very interesting perspectives of people who are kind of on the outside watching really closely what's going on, but 
are starting to get involved a little bit more uh, and are going to be definitely involved with more programming as we go forward. So Will has been a very established coach at our club and coaching for a number of years, running our master's group. Uh, and then Kate is actually in the development seat of learning to be a coach. Uh, and we held a, a development camp earlier this year. Kate was heavily involved with it. Uh, and so she got a really firsthand experience. Will has seen the boats too. Uh, and so their involvement is really, again, kind of helping me try to define this programming over the next few years. So uh, I'm most interested in coastal as a replacement for lightweight rowing at the international level. Um, I think that the International Olympic Committee is correct in at least one thing that it's unusual to have a sport that has a lightweight category. We don't have lightweight basketball or lightweight badminton or anything like that. So having something else that can allow lightweights to compete in the peak of their uh, competitive fitness would be really, really exciting. Um, right now, there are a lot of events uh, internationally that don't have lightweight categories, and that's perfectly fine. Um, but I do think that lightweight is really good for people at the beginning of their career when they're younger, especially in the junior age, and really starting to develop themselves individually. It allows for a lot more competition. And I think that especially as people get older, you're going to have a lot of individuals who wouldn't ever think about competing uh, against um, an open seat rower. But if there's a lightweight category, they're definitely going to give rowing a try, either coming back to it later on as an adult or starting out for the first time. So having Coastal in there as a way to bridge that gap at the international level is really important. Um, but I wanted to take a step back because not everybody who's listening knows much of anything about Coastal rowing. So could you tell us, John, maybe, or Will, uh, uh, a little bit about uh, Coastal rowing and how it's different than flatwater rowing? Yeah, so Coastal rowing, right now on the racing scene boils down to two different events. There's the endurance racing, which at the international level, they have the world rowing coastal championships. Uh, it's anywhere from four to six K, uh, depending on the venue or the, just the heats or finals. Sometimes they'll change up to distance. Uh, and then they now have also beach sprints. Beach sprints is the newest format of coastal rowing, uh, which starts with a, a start on the sand includes running to the boat racing out 250 uh, out, uh, which includes some slaloming around some buoys. And then you do a 180 turn and come back straight back to the beach and, and run up the beach 50 meters through the finish line. Um, so it's, it's a lot different than flat water rowing for some obvious reasons, just like Will was mentioning before of, of you know, the fact that there's some running involved. So there's some just basic athleticism to just get in and out of the boats quickly. Um, but also, uh, you know, there's a lot of problem solving that happens on the water, which is really unique. Um, I think, you know, uh, my mentality about flat water rowing is that you do a lot of preparation ahead of time. Um, and so there's not a whole lot of surprises uh, when it comes to race day. I mean, you might have some things that come up that you have to deal with, but uh, it's, it's pretty much all planned out. And one thing I've really quickly learned in coastal rowing is, always expect to be surprised in your race, always expect to have some massive issue that you have to overcome. Uh, and, and almost every single race, it's gonna be something new. Uh, and even between the rounds, beach sprints, the, the format that they've chosen is to have it be a tight format. Uh, you may have three or four races within one hour. Uh, 
Uh, and the conditions can change very quickly within that hour. You can go out and, you know, the tide could be pulling in on one of your races and you could be uh, going out 10 minutes later and the tide could be turned around and suddenly the slope of the beach is different and the waves are crashing in differently off the beach. And suddenly that changes your entire racing strategy. Um, so that to me is kind of the biggest difference is that problem solving mentality that you have to master. You know, that just actually got me thinking about, it's been a while, but I used to do swim and bike duathlons and you never knew what the water was going to be that day. And you were, you always crossed your fingers and hoped that the water was going to be flat for your swim, but you could get out there and it was going to be choppy and disgusting. And the current was going to be dragging you away from the finish line. So um, I'm just making that connection there between kind of swimming and water conditions and that coastal rowing uh, and figuring all that out and the navigating. It's fascinating. So Kate, I saw that you were nodding kind of emphatically about problem yeah. solving. So can you give us an example maybe that you've seen? Cause you're a coach in training, but you're also a flat water rower. So you're, so I shadowed the coaching for the clinic that we just had here in new Orleans. And I will say that it seems like a completely different sport mentally. And I think it will be interesting as it develops to see how many people really get into it coming from flat water rowing and loving flat water rowing versus coming to rowing with no experience because of the different way that coastal rowing interacts with water. A lot of our, um, especially the master's team that came, but this was true even with John and Hannah and John Olbrice was here for the clinic. The, the like pursuit of perfection that it exists in flat water rowing where every time you take a stroke and you're like, this next stroke is going to be the stroke where I get it. Like, and then if you, if you have a great stroke, you're like, okay, now I'm going to do it two times in a row. And then that two times in a row is elusive for so long. The, the nature of coastal rowing, your oars could miss water for three strokes in a row because of the way the boat sits in a wave. And you have to, it's a totally different mental battle to accept that you're not in control of what your oars are doing and what the boat is doing at all times while also still trying to master control. It's, it's a very different sport from as far as the mental approach goes and what you have to accept and then where like avenues of control exist. But I, I would think that that might be attractive to some new mm -hmm. rowers because I think that that perfection thing does not appeal to everyone. I teach a lot of adult learn to row and and uh, both Rachel and I have a lot of new masters that we work with and over the year. And, you know, we're trying to push the perfection thing because of, you know, that's how it works in flat water uh, rowing. So I love that. That really might appeal to some people who are like, you know what, I just kind of take it as it comes and I'm strong and I'm athletic or I'm looking for a new sport and I live in a coastal area. Um, that would definitely be an appeal in terms of recruiting and maybe even for some kids who are, maybe not this, you know, the six foot tall, you know, the kind of the build that's the typical rower build that because coastal boats are quite a bit wider, aren't they than flat water boats? Yeah, they're really wide. Um, and you're, you're spot on about the different sizes of athletes who are succeeding at this right now. It is a little bit more kind of in the middle. Uh, th those athletes are having the most success. So on the men's side, you know, if you're 5'10", 6'1", I mean, that's right in the sweet spot uh, with kind of the equivalent on the women's side. 
uh, of, of who's doing really well at this. And uh, yeah, the stroke is different. And, you know, as, as we found the big ERG scores are not the people who are excelling at this. They're not the people who are making the boats go fast because they're almost having a fight in all the wrong ways with the water conditions. They think they can just power and muscle right through it. And instead of actually listening to the water and actually working with the water, um, and, you know, even down to the really technical, I mean, you're talking about how we actually rig these boats. There are some of the lightest loads I've ever seen in the sport. I mean, we are taking the oars all the way down uh, to the to the smallest dimensions that we can get uh, for the obvious reasons. The boat's heavy, but also, again, it's not about just cranking watts through the water necessarily. It's about being in tune with the with the water. Because of our amazing patrons, we've been able to provide 16 Changemaker scholarships to rowers, coaches, and club founders who have big ideas for the future of our sport. When you join our Patreon community for as little as $5 per month, you support the Changemaker Scholarship Initiative and help develop new leaders in the rowing community. You'll also be the first to know about new episodes, get steady state freebies and store discounts. Find out more at steadystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. In two, we're back talking about coastal rowing with New Orleans Rowing Club. That's one, two. John, I think you should also talk about boat handlers and what part they play. Um, Because that's almost like another position, the same way that rower or coxswain might be in coastal rowing for sprint races. Yeah. So before you do that, though, who like tell us about like there's doubles, quads, are there singles? Yeah. So right now, the most popular uh, boats at the, the racing level, international level, is going to be singles, doubles, and quads. Um, there are sweep coastal boats and stuff, but they're not what's happening at the world rowing level right now. Um, and also, the other thing is all the team boats, what they're focusing on is mixed boats, um, which is really exciting. That's actually how my wife and I, Hannah, first got interested into this was not actually the coastal aspects or anything. We actually were just seeking some of the top level of competition for mixed doubles. uh, Since we had been doing a lot of mixed doubles racing and just wanted to to challenge ourselves and find the best competition. Um, And that's a, that's a trend that we're seeing across a lot of different sports. Um, If you've just watched the Olympics this last year, uh, you saw triathlon, you saw track and field, a lot of these different sports are starting to switch to this kind of sprint style relays. Uh, they're doing it all mixed. You might see two men and two women on one team on a track. And this is essentially rowing's response to that. It's the absolute right move. Uh, and it's, it's, it's also pulling in some massive television numbers too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially the sprint format is entirely set up for TV viewership. Uh, and, and it sounds bad, right? Like, it sounds like, oh my gosh, like, collective eye roll here that we're just selling ourselves out. But uh, I can I can say firsthand from my experience in Portugal, not only is it great for television watching, but it was also just thrilling as an athlete to be able to go through that format too. Uh, there was something special about that venue that even to this day, I think all the athletes who were there who participated, uh, we kind of share this collective kind of buzz about the whole thing. And we cannot wait to go back out there in Wales and do it again. Real quick, so I'll, I'll also just comment about the, the watching experience. Sure, uh, yeah. Like I watched the entire Olympics for rowing, all like six hours every day for with 10 days straight. Um, 
but the beach sprints, you know, is something, as John said, completely different because you have all the events, all the races back to back from, you know, the, the semifinal up through the quarterfinal and then the final right there within hour and a half, two hours. So wow. we had uh, the entire, entire New Orleans team get together and watch it. And that alone was great. Just being able to have everyone together and enjoy watching a sport and watching people compete. You know, we probably would have done that whether we had teammates there or not, um, just because of how quick the format actually is. And it wouldn't have been a prerequisite that people, all everybody understood because, it, you know, it's, it's rowing, it's pretty much relatable, it's easy to watch, it's fun to watch. Yeah, and they'd be, like, they'd be like, Will, what, what's happening there? Like, who is that person? So before we go there, I just want to finish with John's thought about, or your thought about the extra staff person, the extra person, the cox and the boat handler. Just tell me about that. But then I, back to what John was going to talk about. Yeah. So the boat handling is another critical aspect. Um, I, you know, in many ways, it sounds like you just have a, an extra coach or staff person there to just help you get in the boat and push off because that is part of the race, right? Like in beach sprints, you run 50 meters down the beach. You have your athletes also getting in the boat at that time. Uh, but you, by the rules of beach sprints, you are allowed anywhere from two to three boat handlers uh, to be there with the boat to actually help the athletes get in, help the athletes keep the point of their boat. Uh, and also kind of the, the, I think what a lot of people don't realize is the boat handlers are also pushing the boat off. So in many ways, it's an extra athlete on your squad, uh, someone that you need to have really strong and with a lot of mass, who can really send your boat off. Um, I actually got firsthand experience of being a boat handler myself. It was kind of a crazy story in Portugal. Uh, I had man managed to, to meet Chetel Borsch and Oscar Helvig, who are two Olympians from the Norwegian national team. And they had gotten a, a acceptance from their from their national body to go to Portugal, but they had to go on uh, on the trip by themselves. They didn't come with any staff. I didn't really know what they were doing. <laughs> this was their first experience with coastal, and so uh, we were having I think it was drinks or something or dinner. We had met them the night before and asked them, "Do you guys need boat handlers?" Because uh, I had John Olbers and I had time uh, while their racing was going, and so they're like, "Yeah." Um, so I ended up getting to boat handle for them and really show them the ropes of that and get my own firsthand experience of how critical that could be. Uh, that also happened to, to be the same race that they went off and, and broke an oar with the Belgian crew at the, uh, at the, the uh, first turning buoy, which is kind uh -huh. of a legend now, because this is when um, the Belgian crew, after they both snapped their oars, actually took their good oars out and threw them to uh, Oscar and, and Chettle to, uh, to, to put in their orlocks and, and continue and finish the race. So it was, that was like kind of cool. Cause I was sitting on the beach, just like, Oh my gosh, like this is the worst thing ever. Cause I was actually part of it. Like I was actually part of their team to help them to set off. That's amazing that the other crew gave them their oars. You never hear about that happening. Yeah. Uh, you know, and yeah. it was only about one K into the race. Um, and so, uh, you know, with, just how coastal is that's that's a massive setback to have to overcome but uh i think they were probably in almost next to dead last place at that point by the time they resettle themselves and we got to sit there and watch them climb back into the race i think they ended up getting like 12th or 13th place at the end of the day uh, which is pretty phenomenal given how much damage they had to their hull at that point wow 
it's just a totally different feel. Like, I mean, we've all offered to carry oars for somebody, you know, at a race, but to say, hey, do you need any boat handlers? Like, I mean, we've also helped people carry boats. Like we've done all that kind of stuff. So I love that there's a carryover there with that camaraderie um, in rowing. It sounds really fun. John, yeah, you so- could think about You could think about really in a race that is two and a half minutes, three minutes long, someone who's going to shave two seconds off your time by pushing you off at the right time and getting you through that first wave. So you have like water to grab your oar is going to be monumental. So that is a place where you do want a, you know, 210 pound, uh, six foot five person actually shoving your boat uh, as hard as they can. That story is a really good example of the difference between the pursuit of a perfect flat water stroke and the total unpredictability and problem solving approach that Coastal requires because he's used to winning all the time. He's won all the time for years and then he has this huge crisis and has to solve it and be resilient and continue to go and then place below 10th. I think there's something too about that freedom, right? You you have to like slough off all these old notions you have of what rowing is. And Tara and I talk a lot about the perfect stroke, right? And and Kate, you were saying this earlier with flat water rowers, like we just hope for flat water, no wind, quiet placement of the blades, boat running beautifully underneath us. And you know, I've been involved with rowing for so long now that I'm, I'm actually really excited about the notion and the chance to get into a coastal boat and just like get rid of all that baggage of maybe not taking very many perfect strokes and just say, what happens? What's going to happen today? <laughs> uh, the words you use are so anti-coastal, <laughs> quiet, Beautiful, you know, like you right. throw all that out the window. I mean, I, another analogy, just because of my background growing up, I was always playing ball sports, right? Baseball, basketball, those are all contact sports. You're jostling around, you're interacting with your opposition, you know, hitting each other. It's contact sport. And in many ways, I almost view coastal as the same thing. It's a contact sport. And I think the other thing, it's also a game right? Like it's, it's, it's a mind battle between you and the other crew and also the conditions itself. And coastal is the only time I've ever really seen in rowing a moment or an opportunity to have a a true upset, you know, a true David versus Goliath where, you know, the, the giant might suddenly have a problem like, oh my gosh, they just shattered their blades at buoy number one. The, the door is wide open. Anybody can win this. And it's also part of the sport. It's, it's supposed to happen. Chaos right. is supposed to happen. And it's part of it. And I, that's what, to me, I love it. <laughs> I absolutely think John needs to be an announcer for Coastal <laughs> because I'm like, okay, okay. Yes, I love, I love competitive sports. I love team sports. I love watching sports. I love sports highlights. I love all of those things. I think and who, does, and who doesn't sit at head of the Charles and wait for boats to crash <laughs> one <right>. turn. <laughs> yeah, we're wishing for coastal uh coastal things to happen. Um one thing I wanted to go back to was John, you and and you all mentioned you all talked about venues and how in New Orleans you have this 24 mile wide lake and as well as another venue that's used for what you called flat water. So when I hear lake, 
I think flat water rowing. So what about that makes it coastal? So someone asked me this yesterday, who's a total noob and was like, I said, well, maybe it's that it's salt water or that it's a beach launch or that it's got enough to, anyway, I'll let you go. But yeah. what exactly uh, con- would make something a coastal venue? The word that we use is fetch. Fetch is a, is a, a big term, meteorological uh, oceanography term. It just means that the longer distance the wind has a chance to, to pick up speed and start pushing water. When you're on the back end of that coast, as far away from the wind as possible, um, that's when fetch has its greatest impact. So we in New Orleans, we sit on the south shore of Lake Pontchartrain. Uh, it's, it's a 24 mile across lake. If it's blowing hard out of the north, especially in the wintertime when we get those cold fronts that come through, the waves can pick up pretty massively on the south coast and be just absolutely battering our coastline. And if the conditions are the opposite, so if it's blowing hard for us out of the south, out of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, it can be literally dead flat and mirror-like on the lake on our side, but could be the total opposite on the other side of the lake. Uh, so for that reason, we, you know, like Will was saying, we can have waves up to three, five feet uh, on our lake just based on the wind conditions. Um, that is coastal, um, but obviously there's a lot more that can go into coastal. And I think that's where the different venues gets really interesting. Uh, and th- there should be variety in the venues. It shouldn't be one uh, cookie cutter model for what it is. Uh, the, the water elements that we don't have here are things like swell, things like intense tidal movement where water pushes in and pushes out. Uh, which you might see more up north uh, or just closer to the actual oceans like the Gulf of Mexico or Atlantic. So when we were doing our training last year, even though we did a lot of training in New Orleans off of our own body of water, we also had to go to different venues. We had to take training trips to go put ourselves in some of those different conditions where we could feel swell, where we could feel you know, different angles of beaches to feel the waves break in different ways. And so that was another really exciting thing about training was, is trying to put yourself in different venues as part of the preparation. Uh, you can't just go hide in your own venue. And, and uh, I think there's very few venues in the world where you could actually get a little bit of everything and feel like you can go train and, and race anywhere in the world. And, and John, I know that you guys had a, a pretty unexpected training trip up to D.C., before heading to Portugal. What led to that? Yeah. So one of the challenges with living in the South is, is living with hurricanes. Um, about every five to 10 years, we, we have a hurricane roll through. Um, they come in all different sizes and intensities. Uh, and we had Hurricane Ida roll through this fall, uh, which really hammered New Orleans pretty hard this time. Um, so we were actually planning to have a training trip in New Orleans that week. John Olbrys had actually flown in, uh, and all the forecasts were projecting the storm to, to stay towards Texas, I think it was. Uh, and almost overnight between Friday into Saturday, it swung straight towards New Orleans and kept getting worse and worse through the day to a point where we essentially had a, I think it was a category four, I want to say, storm right over our head. We had a winds uh, 120 miles an hour blowing right over our boathouse, uh, which is all outdoor. We actually lost a bunch of boats and 
we were sitting in our house, lost power. Uh, I remember one of the last communications we had uh, before the whole text message servicing went down was from our energy company who said, I, I took a screenshot of it because I'll, I'll never forget this. Um, they said, our main power line has fallen into the river. You will be without power for five to six weeks at least. Good luck Ooh. is basically what the utility company told us. Oh. Uh, we're like, holy moly. That's uh, a life The storm was still going on. So into Monday, uh, it was fine. We had no power, obviously. Um, but we had to start making plans about leaving because there was just no way we could stay, especially with our two-year-old at home. There was just no way. And obviously with our training for Portugal, we were supposed to leave three weeks later. Um, so we packed up uh, the night before we left Monday night. It was, I think, 85 degrees in my house and humid. Uh, I couldn't even sleep. It was so hot. Uh, so we packed up, left at like three o'clock in the morning and uh, went up to D.C. where I have still have some family up there and John Albrecht is from there. So we did the rest of our training in D.C. before we went to Portugal. But we, we joke now. I mean, it was it was horrible at the time, super stressful, but. We kind of joke it was almost the perfect coastal training because it put us in just the right mentality of just letting go, <laughs> relaxing, <laughs> accepting that chaos, accepting that it's not going to be perfect training, that we just figure it out, right? And just relocate and make it work. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode with Philadelphia City Rowing, empowering public school students to reach their highest potential. With a small staff, lots of heart, and the support of numerous partners, the newest neighbor on historic Boathouse Row is leading the way in changing the face of rowing on the Schuylkill River. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, would you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. In two, we're back talking about Coastal Rowing with New Orleans Rowing Club. That's one, two. Kate, I wanted to talk to you a little bit because, you know, you talked about uh, the perfection and that that striving for perfection that happens in flat water rowing. So what would make it exciting for you to become a coach of coastal? It sounds like it's a bit of a departure from what you're used to in flat water, but then how does coaching fall into your rowing lifeline or your timeline and how does coastal so what i what i love about coaching is watching people uh meet challenges which include often stuff that has nothing to do with the sport that they're doing so what's universal about sport is we all have uh performance goals and we have fear that is sometimes physical, sometimes related to an injury. I think most people who have been injured significantly have fear of being injured again. Uh, and so assisting people with meeting those challenges and growing through them is what I find to be the most rewarding thing about coaching and coastal opens up. So like, probably more avenues than I can even see at this point in terms of what challenges can I meet in sport that I can then overcome, understand myself in a different way, and then bring to the rest of my other avenues of life. 
Yeah, I think Tara and I have seen that a ton as uh, novice coaches, learn to row coaches, masters coaches. It's so much bigger than the success on the water. You know, what are the stories behind the reason? What are the reasons that people are there that day? And what are they overcoming to be there? And that's something I think is really interesting too, as a coach and as a teammate, you know, we need to figure out what else is happening in people's lives that day. What, what's happening when they get down there on the water? We just kind of assume we get in boats and go and it's going to be a good row, but we could be carrying a lot of baggage from that day, from the past, like you were talking about, Kate, with injuries. We all have something back there in our minds that's propelling us to be there that day. And um, watching people overcome things, grow, change, I think that's really amazing. And I do a lot of coaching uh, at all levels, junior, college, masters, a um, little bit of everything. And one of the things that I always try to, to bring into my coaching is, is giving my athletes some ownership of some part of the sport. Uh, that's what's really going to take their motivation to the next level. And I think one thing that's really special right now with coastal rowing in the U.S. is that even just going out for one row or doing a development camp, like you are taking ownership, you're taking a piece of actually growing the sport and being part of it. Uh, Cause right now, almost every row out in the water is finding a new venue that might work for the future, testing different conditions out. I mean, literally the canvas is wide open for what the sport can be here. Uh, and, and what I'm trying to, to communicate and try to work with my existing flatwater coaches like Kate, like Will on this call, um, is how do we also redefine our training plan, our programming so that we can have athletes embrace both that it's not, doesn't have to be some fight between these different disciplines that we can actually do this at different moments throughout the year and carve out the time for both of them. Uh, because that's what the clubs in Europe are doing right now. They've been doing that for years. Uh, you especially see it from the clubs and crews from Italy, Spain, France, Portugal, uh, who are just like us. They have access to huge amounts of coastal water uh, and, and are, are finding those synergies to be quite successful. I think that's an interesting way of looking at it too, is, is allowing, you know, in a way, allowing your athletes to participate in both could minimize burnout, right? We talk a lot about that with flat water rowing this season, March to November, at least up here on the East Coast up North, March to November, you know, by, by September, October, we're starting to feel it. It's becoming a grind and you, you stick with it because you want to make it to, to Boston, head of the Charles or whatever it is that you're sticking with it, but it is a grind. And so to be able to switch it up mid season from one, uh, from one uh, type of rowing to another, I love that idea. So can you tell us a little bit uh, more about how New Orleans Rowing Club is starting to develop its coastal rowing programming? I know that you just had um, a coastal development camp not that long ago. Yeah, that's the start. It's got to be just camps, right? Little low-hanging fruit opportunities that are not intensive on the coaches and the people participating to have to, you know, sign on for some massive energy expenditure to put on programming for a few weeks at a time. So uh, we're focused right now on these kind of experiential opportunities uh, for various athletes at various levels. So this camp we did this past weekend was a collection of three different populations. It was our juniors came out, we had masters come out, and then we also had some HP athletes come in. 
uh, to have sessions as well. Um, I think what, what we'll do next is we'll continue to offer those. Um, we'll probably segment out those populations a little bit more to really focus in on those specific subset of groups. Uh, and also very aware that trials is coming up. So we may actually do some camps to see if we can identify some additional athletes who might want to actually go to trials. Um, so that's what's next. I think probably on a longer term horizon, I think within probably one to two years, we'll be looking to host our first race in New Orleans. Uh, it'll probably because of our venue and how it's set up, we're, we're really uh, uh, focused on, on setting up an endurance race on Lake Pontchartrain. And that'll probably be our, our type of venue that makes sense for the body water we have. Yeah, that was my follow-up question was how tourism and rowing tourism plays into this. So when you introduce a new sport in this kind of a venue, you're bound to attract people who might travel to New Orleans who are rowers. And we all know being in the rowing community, you can basically go anywhere in the world, knock on the door of a boathouse and say, hey, can I hang out and can I come for a row? And I, I know I would be really excited to come to New Orleans and be like, actually, can I do that over there? Can I try the coastal rowing? And so when you have new competitions and new events, are you also inviting some rowing tourism uh, into your boathouse? And I mean, imagine you live in a destination place uh, as New Orleans also, so. Yeah, New Orleans is a city. Yeah, this is definitely a tourism city. We have, I'd say, at least one person a week uh, visiting us, sometimes multiples during big events or if there's a big conference in town. Um, you know, COVID has changed travel. But prior, you know, if we had a convention of doctors in town, we'd have five or six guest rowers for that week who would come out with us. Um, and we love that. Like, we want people to come see our body of water and come experience just a different pace that New Orleans has to offer. And so being able to say, yes, we have a coastal venue too, um, will be really, really exciting. We're also at this nice driving nexus for a lot of different people from Texas, Florida, or Tennessee. You know, we're about six, it's a six hour trip, but you can make it here and enjoy a nice weekend and then, you know, still head home. So there's a lot of opportunities for us to host individuals or clubs even um, and coming down and hanging out with us and going out on the water and just enjoying our beautiful city. That's really cool. I mean, I know that um, I love being that rower that knocks on a boathouse door and being able to try not just one form of rowing, but maybe try something special would just be so interesting. And it's also really classic for the area. So like, I know if I went to Halifax, Nova Scotia, or I went to see Kuhn Elbers, in, uh, in the Netherlands, coastal touring and everything would be such a great way for me to expand my uh, rowing knowledge and also just find out about uh, different kinds of things. How does the, do you ever do like a public, I mean, are you plan, doing any plan, have, making any plans for like, we do national learn to row day. Like, is there any plans for like a national learn to coastal row day? Not officially. Um, U.S. Rowing did some development camps last year, and I think that was a little bit of the intention was mm -hmm. to have it like we did have a variety of populations of people get a chance to go out to different venues around the country. So they held one in Pensacola, Florida, who are very close friends with us and helping to develop and define coastal rowing in the Gulf South. 
but then they also have ones up in Virginia and I think the Cleveland area and out west. Um, and I, my hope is that they do that again. Uh, we personally will be putting on more programming in May. Uh, and this is probably something that we'll be marketing on the U.S. Rowing website through their coastal pages to let people know that they can, yeah, come down, sign up, uh, and that we'll have some seats available. Um, like I said, this partnership we have with Pensacola is, is really critical because they have a lot of coastal equipment, singles and doubles, um, that we've been sharing between the two different locations. And we'll load up trailers and move these boats back and forth uh, as needed so that we can both put programming on. So... Uh, I think that's a, a really special thing that I haven't really seen any other clubs do before. Kind of like what, like sharing equipment, like this is crazy. Uh, so there's a lot of trust between me and Bob Osborne over in, in Pensacola to make this work. But uh, like I said, it, it coastal rowing requires you to use multiple venues. You can't just be stuck in a hole somewhere and, and think that you're going to be ready for all water conditions. So uh, we're really excited about our partnership with them and and hope it, it's going to continue to flourish and grow. Where in the world is like the coastal rowing? Like where, if you had to pick like your bucket list coastal rowing destinations, where, where would that be? Mediterranean. Mediterranean. Okay. Yeah. Europe. I mean, Europe has been doing coastal rowing probably even be before flatwater rowing. I mean, coastal rowing is how they got started in rowing. So your country is Italy, France, Spain, uh, even up north, places like Sweden, Norway, uh, Great Britain, they're all heavily engaged with coastal. They have athletes who've been focused on coastal year round and are high performance athletes who focus on this year round. Uh, and that was, that was something that was warned to us when we went to Portugal is Watch out for those, those Spanish athletes, watch out for the French, watch out for the Italians, because these are not necessarily your flat water. There were some flat water Olympians and national team rowers doing this, but these were some high hitting coastal athletes who take this seriously. They do this full time. Uh, and that was just mind boggling to see. And it was really cool to see just how good they really were on the water. Yeah. I actually got to get in a coastal boat on the Rhine river couple of years ago, uh, just outside of, um, Frankfurt and with a club and, you know, we went for a 22 K row on the Rhine, um, one morning and that was fantastic, but it was very, very different being in that boat. Um, and get, by getting to, you know, join another club for a day, which we all love to do was a great experience. Um, and so I'm very much looking forward to getting into those other boats across the world because there is a new opportunity to travel that way. I think it's a lot more accessible just to join someone in a coastal boat because you aren't chasing that perfect stroke. You know, um, By the end of practice, we are obviously rowing better together, but it doesn't require the days, weeks, months of practice that being a really, really fast, really, really strong uh, flat water crew requires. You could hop into a boat with a lot of other people and within hours or days be really, really competitive because you are solving those problems uh, that you have to encounter when you're just in a wider, larger boat uh, that requires more finesse to move it down your body of water. Uh, what's, what's really cool about coastal is they turn so much sharper than the flat water boats. I mean, uh, do you we, stop? We, 
What's that? Do you stop and hold down to turn or do you actually row to turn? Both. <laughs> I mean, it's like a, uh, like a fast drift. I would, I would describe a turn in coastal rowing, uh, uh, like getting around a turn, basically. Um, we used to, in the quad, at least, it was seven strokes or less to turn the boat. Um, so you would, you know, get into basically a little car crash to slow your boat down. And then you're immediately powering on to try to get out of that turn in seven strokes or less. I mean, it's, that's just bonkers. <laughs> and that's, uh, yeah. remember at college, you know, having coaches, uh, you know, knit and pick, turn your boat faster. You're wasting time. And like, it, that's the name of the game here. It's like, there's no time to waste. Get that thing turned around. And that's closer to some flat water racing that is very, very old, that stake race competition format. You know, that's that's what we had here in the city a long time ago, uh, back in the 1800s, was stake racing, because that was how it was a watchable sport, mm. um, was to have people go out and back, and that way you could watch the start and the finish. Yeah, so there's, uh, we haven't even talked to you about this, but there is an incredibly long history of rowing in New Orleans. And I know that today you mentioned that you're the only club in the state that has juniors and masters programming. Where's the closest boathouse to you now? Uh, there is no rowing in Mississippi. Uh, there is almost no rowing in all of South Alabama. You have to go up to Birmingham and up to uh, North Alabama before you start finding clubs. And then west of us, the closest clubs are in the Houston and, and North Houston area in the Woodlands, Texas. Um, so New Orleans is really in a, a pretty deep hole pocket. I, I almost talk about a, a, us being almost like an island of activity because there's not a lot around us. So anything we do is, is very much on our own. We really have no support from other local clubs to, to do what we do. The only other clubs in state are Tulane, which is in New Orleans, and then uh, LSU and NSU, who are the three collegiate sports in the, in the state. But they're focused on, on sweeping and big boats and stuff like that. So we're really the only scholars in the whole area. Huge challenge, challenge programming-wise, because we can't always invite clubs to come down and race us, because it's a huge slog for them to come here, too. Um, so we're trying to desperately start more high school programs in the area so that we can develop kind of a interstate, almost inner city, just like you see elsewhere when you start to see clubs really take off and get fast. Um, and I think, you know, again, going back to bridging this back to coastal, just the nature that it, coastal also involves a lot of head to head racing and stuff. I think it also just facilitates a lot of what we've been doing with flat water, which is a lot of head to head competition, a lot of internal competition. So last question. So we were talking a little bit about uh, before about, you know, making rowing more digestible for the public and more watchable and more exciting. And it'd be really hard to not ask you about the possibility of coastal rowing at the 2028 Olympics. People are talking about that being a venue that is, you know, pretty hospitable for this type of rowing and racing. What do you think? Is it going to happen? I hope so. I, I really do hope so. I, I think this would be a huge moment for rowing to break away from this six or seven minute race format uh, that is, is not capturing the attention of the next generation. I, I hate to say it, but we, we are dealing with the TikTok generation. They want things digested in, in a short amount of time. Uh, and, and beach sprints in particular is set up as a almost perfect 
it's not a perfect sport yet. I think the rules still need a little bit of flushing out, but it's almost perfect in, in the format of being able to capture that attention. Uh, and I think that the, the other huge element we haven't talked about yet is just how out there the model lends itself to making the faces of rowers and personalities in rowing really be put on the podium. Uh, you know, just the fact that we, you know, as part of the racing, we have to go and stand with the announcer <laughs> with Peter from world rowing and be introduced before every single race. And he's like, okay, good luck. And 45 seconds later, we're literally standing in the water and starting the race. Uh, and we go off, we do our race, we come back. And within five minutes, 10 minutes later, we could be in the next round being introduced again. And so over the course of that hour of television viewing for that event, you get to really start to learn who those athletes are. And there's a lot of moments to learn about their backstories where I feel like with Flatwater, it's like when you go to watch a race at the Olympics, you're suddenly thrust into the start line and you have six crews and it's, it's very hard to understand who's who, who's in which lane, who are the athletes in those boats. It's all kind of lost. And then all of a sudden you're into the race and there's lots of splashing. So if you're not in tune with the sport, it's very hard to understand what's going on. Uh, whereas I think coastal rowing and beach sprints helps kind of bridge that gap to some of the other formats from other sports where you have a more proper introduction. The, the athletes and their personalities really drive uh, the sport. Uh, and then the rowing comes next after that. Yeah, you're right. Because in flat water, you can be really anonymous as a rower. You know, most people are going to have no idea who you are, but building personalities, man, that goes Tara to a conversation we were having with Maurice Scott recently. Hmm. Maurice Scott is a, is a lightweight scholar, flat water scholar out of PBC. And he's all about building the sport through building personality. And, um, I think he's doing it. One, one, uh, one TikTok, one <laughs> Instagram at a time. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's, there's a lot of room for that in this sport. You're right. We need to shake it up, bring in fresh blood. In the last year, I watched a lot of rowing at work because of the Olympics. And then when Hannah and John made the coastal rowing team and then went to Portugal, that gave like a local connection to coastal rowing. And I was watching with people who have no exposure to rowing at all, most of them. And I do think that um, most people who get something out of watching flat water rowing are rowers and have some understanding of what's going on communication wise and mentally in the boat. And that's what makes it exciting for us to watch where coastal rowing is immediately relatable to anyone watching because of the chaos. There's like a what is going to happen here to these people? And what are they doing? Even if you have no understanding of the rules or goals, it, it's still fun. Well, I had one question that I wanted to just do a roundtable and just ask you to, to wrap up today. What are you looking forward to this year for Coastal at Newark, New Orleans Rowing Club? John? We will be hosting a Coastal camp again in May. That's next on our radar. Um, what comes after that is still a little bit of an unknown because um, Hannah and I especially are really at the charge of this. And But our, our goal is to have at least two or three more of these weekend development camps in New Orleans uh, for these different populations, juniors, masters, elite. 
uh, and to carry that forward into providing more program ne programming next year, which might be week-long training camps here uh, to eventually having our own race in New Orleans, which would be an endurance race. And for you personally? Um, for me, I'm training for trials this year. My sole goal is to make the beach sprints team uh, and to also qualify and race for the endurance race in Wales. Great. Will, what are you looking forward to this year? So I'm looking to get some additional athletes uh, interested in the sport more than uh, what we already have going on at the club. Um, so that, you know, usually involves acquiring a few more shells, something that we can, you know, use full time here. Um, cause we still do have inclement weather every once in a while, but those are the perfect days to take out coastal boats. Um, so there are some new opportunities to take our, you know, rowing time, which is about 85% of the time, you know, closer to 95 or 98% of the time, uh, being out on the water and coastal lets us do that. Great. Kate, anything for you? More coaching this year? Uh, I'm really looking forward to developing as a coach. Uh, the weekend that we did the coastal camp, I actually didn't row at all. I just spent the entire weekend in the launch. And I told some of the other rowers that participated that I'm pretty sure I had the most fun of anyone. <laughs> uh, it's just like watching people develop and be challenged is so fun. Great. I love that. That's my favorite part about being a coach too. All those light bulbs that go off and the light bulbs that shatter, you know, <laughs> it's really fun. Awesome. Well, you guys, uh, thank you so much for talking with us today. We could definitely talk with you uh, a lot more about coastal and flat water and New Orleans and the Olympics and all of that. So hopefully we'll get to a ch uh, chance another day to have those sorts of conversations. But um, it's been it's been good getting to know you and learning more about coastal and New Orleans Rowing Club today. So thanks for uh, teaching us a little bit more about coastal rowing. Thanks for having that? us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank right. you. All right. Talk awesome. to you soon. Okay. Bye. 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 To see photos of John, Will, and Kate, along with the links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in the episode, check out the show notes on our website. Hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Totally. We should definitely tell them. We've got virtual events happening every week that brings together the rowing community from across the country and actually around the world. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I really look forward to Friday mornings when we get together for coffee chat on Instagram Live because we get to talk about rowing and racing and technique, but we also delve into things like DEI and motivation slumps. And it's always neat when rowers from around the world tune in. And so we hope you'll join us on Fridays, eight o'clock West, 11 o'clock East on Instagram Live. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to our conversation. And we also know that everyone sometimes needs buddies to help get them through long pieces on the ERG. I know I do. So we lead Steady State Sundays, the fourth Sunday, basically, <laughs> of each month at 6.45 a.m. West, 9.45 a.m. East. And when you register for this 60 minute steady state erg workout, we give cues and insights to keep you motivated along the way. So you can work at your own pace and then stick around after to chat. Yeah, I really like that at your own pace. I row at about a 16. <laughs> <laughs>
So um, if you want to find out more about any of our events and claim your spot in our lineup, go ahead and visit steadystatenetwork.com slash events. Steady State Podcast is brought to you by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Between us, we have 33 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience and running successful rowing-related enterprises. Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, where they champion inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, the original resource for master's rowers. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Seize the Oar and RowSource. Thanks so much for listening. In two, way enough. That's one, two, way enough.